Khatrina Garnasvila is a writer translator and interpreter working with the English Lithuanian French German Russian and Georgian In this episode she spoke about Lithuanian literature and translation and her work in translations She is currently pursuing a PhD and teaching at the University of East Anglia and serves as a member of the BCLT research group Her research focusing on dialect translation is funded by Chase Arts and Humanities Research Council. She is the winner of the Emerging Translator Mentorship at the National Center for Writing and has been awarded traineeships at the EU Council and the European Parliament. Her most recent translation Little Apples of Eden is coming out in Norwich based Kurmuru Books in 2024. Welcome to our podcast Harshneem Welcome. It's great to be here. I love your podcast. I usually I prefer reading to listening to podcasts, which is a shame because there are so many interesting podcasts, but yours is by far one of my favorite ones, and I think it's great to have a podcast dedicated to literary translation. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for being a guest. So, how did you develop interest in translations? to begin. I'm going to say BCLT summer school which was a very important um event in my translation journey but it all started way before that. Um and when I think back there are so many reasons and circumstances that just led me to translation. But I have to say that I didn't really realize it properly before attending BCLD summer school in 2017. So all these aspects were like growing up in a very multilingual um background, being interested in creative writing since a very early age, and I would say that was um probably before attending the summer school it was the creative writing aspect that I was interested in perhaps a little bit more than translation at that point because the summer school is called um, British Centre for Literary Translation um creative writing and literary translation summer school and it really does combine both translation and creative writing sessions but after attending the summer school I just became absolutely immersed in translation it just um provided me with this vision of what translation is which i didn't really have before despite having all these different elements of translation in my life oh, so your mother tongue is lithuanian right i gathered that's true although technically i suppose i have two mother tongues uh, which are lithuanian and georgian because my mother's lithuanian and my father's georgian and uh, we used both languages when i was growing up i grew up in lithuania so naturally i gravitated more towards lithuanian and uh, so i uh, that that was the language that we used at home more and so on but there was always even more than those two languages in our household i don't know i i don't even know how but i just know that we were always using a lot of languages and um so when i started reading that was in several languages at once 
Um, so I guess it was a bit kind of natural to me to have all these, all these different languages just happening in the background, uh, more or less actively. So yes, but technically my mother tongue, like officially, I think it is Lithuanian. Yes. So when did you move to UK? Um, when was it? Um, I think that was for my bachelor's. Uh, some time ago. Gosh, I can't even remember exactly. Around 2014, perhaps. So I was doing my bachelor's jointly in Vilnius University and in Middlesex University in London. And uh, that's when I sort of formally started living in UK. And I've been back and forth ever since. Uh, so yeah, it started with my with my bachelor's. So in Lithuania, English is taught widely in the school. Is it a mandatory language? English, it wasn't really mandatory, I think. Mm -hmm. And my school, actually, it had a, a more of a focus on German. So we started German really early, since first grade, I think. But that said, I was always learning English. And as I said, like when I started reading, I started reading both in Lithuanian and in English. It just sort of coincided. So I started learning English perhaps earlier than um, my peers in Lithuania. So it wasn't it wasn't mandatory, but it's a very popular language in Lithuania. And um, like right now, uh, the level of um, students at schools is really high so it's um it's like the second language really people's level of it is really high in Lithuania and it already was when I was perhaps a little less when I started uh, school but still it was really prominent so you mean to say if uh, anybody who knows English they can manage themselves easily in uh, Lithuania is it if they for a visit if somebody yeah, I think they're very safe. I think they're perhaps the older generation will not have that good of knowledge of English, but but honestly, I think it's changing too because people are just catching up with uh, latest shows which are in English and uh, so much of the news is in English. So there's a really, really high chance that whoever you start talking to on the street. Uh, in Lithuania will know English and will be able to give you directions or something like that. Your PhD, you said you just finished it and congratulations uh, for completing your PhD. Thank you so much. I still think that I haven't really like formally finished it, but I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long, it's a long Yeah, call. you successfully finished your viva, right? That's true. Okay. I did that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now, coming to that, uh, the interesting thing uh, about uh, your thesis is uh, it's handling dialect in translation. Is it really possible to handle dialect in translation? Can you translate dialect? That's, that's an excellent question. That's basically the aim of my thesis in a nutshell. <laughs> is it really possible to translate dialect? The interesting thing is that, you know, there's no direct way of answering this. The only way, I guess, to answer 
that question is by uh, by trial, by just trying to translate dialect. And each case is just so very different. But it's really interesting because what gave me the idea of um, choosing this topic for my thesis is some successful examples of dialect translation, which I think are... Well, they're just really encouraging and very inspiring, and they sort of show us that it can indeed be done. Although there are so many, so many nuances and so many issues that go into it. So my main case studies were um, train spotting by Irvin Welsh, which is probably the the best known example, which was translated a little earlier than the other ones in the 90s, uh, which I think makes quite a lot of difference. And the other two were um, more recent. So one of them was a Swiss-German novel by Pedro Lenz called Der Goli Binnig, and it was translated into um, a sort of Scottish variation by Donald McLaughlin, uh, and the English title of that book is Not Much of a Talker. Not is spelled N-A-W, which is already telling, I think. And this book was also translated into Chile-Lithuanian dialect. Um, so there were already two successful translations into dialect of a dialect novel, which I thought were fascinating. And another really interesting thing was that the translator of the Lithuanian version, Rimantas Kmita, uh, he wrote, uh, he was inspired to write uh, a novel in dialect himself after finishing that translation. And uh, it was really very successful in Lithuania. And uh, I was looking into that novel as well. So as you can see, there's like this a little complicated but also really clear chain reaction, which just shows us that writing and translating in dialect produces very interesting results and very interesting creative um, endeavors that follow. So my thesis is mainly about that, seeing how different uh, these translations are, the translations of transporting, which I think took a more standard approach, uh, which didn't really attempt to translate into um, like entirely into dialect, and the translations of these uh, of this Swiss German novel, which was bolder and more experimental in that regard. So yeah, just analyzing that, just looking into these different cases was really interesting. And well, I wouldn't. I mean, the whole research is more complicated than that, but at least I think we, I can say with some conviction that yes, it can be done. I, I, think, I think I would say that yes, it can be done if we're, if we're talking about, if we're asking whether dialect can be, can be translated. I think it really depends on what kind of dialect that is and uh, what kind of book that is, and um, just so many other aspects, which is, I, uh, which is something that I was looking uh, into in the thesis as well. And sometimes perhaps it's not as strict as 
picking an exact dialect, let's say, but showing in the translation that the language of the source text was um, non-standard, that there was something different about it instead of attempting to standardize it and erasing that very important non-standardness. I think this, this is what uh, all of these translations uh, that I included in my thesis are doing, and um, I think it's a wonderful practice. But of course, a very challenging one as well, which is why it takes a dissertation, a, a PhD thesis, to actually look into this question. versus no other way, I guess. So you mean to say you give the translation a flavor of uh, usage of non-standard language in the destination language, right? That's true, because I was also looking into many other examples and many different techniques that translators apply. And it just, the pattern is, is that it makes a great difference uh, when the translator pays attention and just um, careful respect to what the source language reveals uh, by the very fact of using that non-standardness. I think it's incredibly interesting and also very challenging. Like, after all that research, um, I mean, it would be very interesting to apply it in, in practice, which I did a little bit in the thesis, but to translate the whole novel, I just really, really admire the translators who do that, who are bold enough to do that. You are also mentored by Daniel Hahn, right? How do you think it helped your uh, translations? It was a very important experience for me. Um, it's funny because it's it coincided with the start of my PhD. So I was uh, completely immersed in translation at that point, and that all was very new to me. So I was... Um, focusing on the theory of translation for my PhD and the practice uh, for my mentorship. That would sometimes be challenging, but also very interesting to combine both of these sides. And um, my mentor, Daniel Hunt, well, he had a great impact on me and I admire him very much. And his work showed me all these different things that comprises being a translator and that it takes a great resilience to be one. At the start of the mentorship, we came up with these this list of titles that uh, I was interested in translating, and I'm still um, I'm still collaborating with most of the authors on that list. So it's um, it's just such a long-lasting impact, and uh, I'm still learning from from it from the whole experience, and I'm really grateful for for many lessons, both direct and inadvertent. So if I have to underline one, the biggest takeaway from that mentorship, what would it be? The greatest takeaway? Well, that would be a very hard to indicate just one. Perhaps that, that whole versatility of translators' um, work, because it's so much more than just the act of translation, and so much, so many other things go into it. Um, it's like 
And the 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 a similar the similar realization came to me when I was attending the summer school as well. It was uh, a confirmation of that, I guess. That translation is uh, a combination of so many things that comprise the mission in the end. That by being a translator, you're also uh, a part of a larger community, uh, which has. Um, which advocates for translation itself, not just the like the individual cases of translation. And uh, I'm still very much impressed uh, with that. When you come to Lithuania as a nation, it was subjected to aggression by neighboring nations in the 20th century. So, how do you think it affected uh, literature coming out of Lithuania, the contemporary literature? I think we can still uh, feel that impact uh, even now. It was, since I translate quite a lot from Lithuanian, I sort of have a chance to witness how um, literature changes over time. And you can, like, see the direct influence of uh, political events in the way that Lithuanian writers work. And right after the independence, which was um, in the early 90s, there was this strong trend of depicting trauma and uh, um, post-war experiences. Uh, in literature, and I feel that during time, uh, people sort of processed their experience through the, through literature, and now literature is becoming more varied and uh, handles different topics. But I feel that processing those experiences was essential, um, and I guess it's I guess it's a natural process of dealing with something like that, this long period of, uh, of oppression. So there, uh, yeah, there are many interesting trends happening right now, which, um, and the generations of authors, they're really different. About uh, translations uh, from Lithuanian uh, literature into English, um, how vibrant is the scene? So there's a lot of things that Lithuanian Culture Institute is doing and um, us as translators from Lithuanian to English are doing, which um, is a bit challenging in a way because it's a small, smaller sort of language. But I feel that it's been exciting, especially lately with uh, some interesting uh, books coming out. In, in the Anglophone world, uh, including this series by Strangers Press, with, which came out just uh, last year. So it was such a nice series as well. So there were five books involved uh, in the series called Kune, which means bodies in, in English. And each of those um, five books are by a different contemporary Lithuanian author. And uh, that was actually quite a discovery for me as well, because it was a little bit of a different take 
because the series was edited by uh, Nathan Hamilton and Oshra Kozilunita. Um, so someone from UK and someone from Lithuania. And I feel that by joining their perspectives, they managed to select really interesting works uh, for publication. And uh, that joint effort, I think, is really interesting and really important to, to introduce Lithuanian literature properly in, in the in UK, in the English world, which uh, is perhaps not that familiar with Lithuanian writing, which I really want to see more of in English. So the strangest press, are they focusing only on Lithuanian translations? Oh yes, so they they do series of books in different languages. So far, I think there have been series in of Korean writing, Japanese writing, um, Dutch, Swiss. It's a really nice variety of languages. And um, in in uh, the concept of this publishing house is that they do series of by different authors, but from the same languages or like a combination of languages. In Switzerland's case, they have all the official languages of Switzerland. So they have French, German, uh, Italian, and even Romance, which I thought was really nice. And while other um, series are language specific, so like Dutch and Lithuanian. I think it's a wonderful concept and I think it's quite unique as well. Um, and Nathan Hamilton, is doing a great job with Strangers Press. I was always, always admiring them, other series of, of other languages, and I was really glad that we decided to do a Lithuanian series as well. So when you say series, in every series, it will be a set of five books, is it? By five different authors. Uh, in Lithuanian case, uh, it's five books. In other languages, I think there's always been more than five. Uh, so there's a new Korean series as well. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's eight books, something like that, or maybe even ten. But in 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 any case, they are by uh, by different authors, and they're always quite short in length. So it's uh, it really it practically always makes sense to get all the all the books in the series, which is uh, a really nice um, concept, I think because they sort of supplement each other and then you end up discovering um, a really varied assortment of, um, of, uh, of new writing from the place or the language. Again, I see that uh, UEA is involved in this University of East Anglia. Uh, yes, so it's uh, Strangers Press is under the umbrella of um, UEA publishing project. So they have several imprints, and Strangers Press focuses on translated literature. And they have other imprints, such as Boilers, Bo Boilers House Press. And uh, yeah, but Strangers Press is uh, meant for uh, translation, for championing translation. From Lithuanian literature, rather than your work, which anyway we are going to discuss. Um, are there any notable translations which uh, you can recommend to our readers into English from Lithuanian to English? Of course. I will give one example for now. 
So it's it's called In the Shadow of Wolves by Alveda Schlepukas. Um, and it's really interesting. And it's such an interesting book. And this was the book that we were working on during the summer school. Uh, when I first attended the summer school uh, and and when I became interested in translation. So we were working on extracts of this book as a group. There were um, eight Lithuanian translators in the group um, and we were all working on this uh, on this particular book. So just it was such an interesting experience and uh, the book had a great success later um, when it was published. And again, it has a strong historical perspective as well. It's um, it's about um, German children who um, uh, wandered into Lithuania during the war and uh, the protagonist, a young girl, uh, she ends up staying and adapting a Lithuanian identity. So yes, it was it was really interesting on working uh, with working on this book, and it's a, a bit of a personal moment for me because so many things, but also this book was what led me into translation and made me so interested in it. So please tell us about your first published work of translation. Uh, so my my first translations happened to coincide actually because I was working on my first two translations simultaneous almost simultaneously. Uh, one was from Lithuanian into English, the other from Georgian into Lithuanian, and um, the book that came out earlier, which would make it my formal first translation, would be the book the translation from Georgian into Lithuanian, uh, which was uh, The Peerfield by Nana ekwin Mishvili. Uh, it is also, the English translation is also available from Perini Press, translated by Elizabeth Hayway. Um, and it was a very unexpected experience because the book was offered to me by the publishing house. And at first I wasn't even because I wasn't really actively translating from Georgian at the time. Um, so it took me a little while to consider whether I was ready for the challenge, but then it just felt like such a personal experience and such an interesting one. And I really loved the book, the book so I took up the challenge. And um, it was really rewarding. I loved that experience. And it was also a little bit surreal in a sense because I was combining my two native languages, Georgian and Lithuanian, and translating one into the other. And at the same time, working with a, an entirely different combination of Lithuanian into English, which is my usual one. I guess I translate mostly from Lithuanian into English or from other languages into English. So translating into Lithuanian was a new experience as well as translating from Georgian. So it was challenging in so many ways but it ended up being a wonderful experience so i'm really glad i decided to um, sort of go with it um and it uh so it was published and i think it was 2022 uh, in lufenia and uh, i received wonderful feedback about that book too 
so it was it was great it was a great experience now coming to your work specifically i have chosen two books one is uh, death and other stories can you please sir uh, tell us about this book death and other stories i believe it's a compilation of stories yes so i should start by saying that death never sorry so it was a compilation um of an lithuanian author the desmorkunas so there's no lithuanian book by this title it's more like a compilation of his various uh short stories so this book is a part of the strangers press series which i mentioned before kune bodies and um it has three long stories and um uh this compilation of flash fiction and it's a fascinating collection i think it was it was very unexpected for me too because i wasn't very familiar with the author before but it was tremendously interesting to translate all of them they're a bit discomforting um full of suspense and uh, fantasy elements and they're just unique i would say i don't know anyone who writes um just as vidas morkunas does perhaps he reminds me a little bit of samantha schweblin and he also writes short stories which um is just extends its similarity and perhaps mariana enriquez as well there's definitely some affinity they're a little bit a little bit unsettling i have to warn you but they're also a great read and a great thing to translate as well that was a very very interesting task so when did this come out uh, this particular book it came out just last year um in 2023 when was it i think it was may so it, it it's just relatively still recent okay yeah of course and the other one is uh, green uh tell us about the author to begin with uh, if i am pronouncing this right marius ivaskevicius is that right <laughs> That's a good attempt. Um it's uh it's a, such a long name honestly. Uh so it's pronounced Marius Ivaskevicius. Okay. Um but honestly, yes, Lithuanian names sometimes are incredibly difficult. Um and uh, it takes a while to pr- practice how to pronounce them. But um Yes, so this book Green or Rale in Lithuanian is um a historical novel. And the author um so it takes me back to the mentorship uh, which we talked about before because his work was one of the titles that I selected to work during the mentorship. Only it was a, his play called uh The Master because uh Marius is an incredibly versatile author and he writes um plays as well as novels and uh, he's also a journalist and he writes essays and non-fiction 
So it's a great selection of work that he has produced. Um, so I started translating his plays and um, the master, I was always very impressed by this play. And I remember it came out when I was still at school. It was a very popular play. And um, I still can't get over the fact that it's just so surreal, you know, to translate things that I grew up with or that I read as a child or that were just like a very prominent um, part of everyone's life in Lithuania and to connect with those works in this different way. It's uh, one of my favorite things of being a translator. So yes, so I started translating this offer as a playwright, but then um, we started this long-term collaboration and by now I've translated a lot of things by him, both plays and prose. I read uh, one review where it says, uh, it mentions uh, in encapsulating uh, the theme of the book, it says, uh, life is vertical and feelings are horizontal. <laughs> it's a very interesting phrase. Could you please elaborate what it is about? Yes, it, this, phrase, this phrase came up in some of my other discussions about this book as well. So I guess, I guess that phrase is really rich. And I actually uh, asked the author about this particular phrase just now. Um, so I'll try to explain, just uh, sort of gather our mutual effort to explain it. Mainly, it's... Um, so he uses this metaphor in the preface of Green, and where he talks about... Um, uh, where he talks about the experience of the partisans or the, um, uh, the Forest Brothers, the, that is the Lithuanian resistance movement, which the book focuses on. So after World War II, um, uh, the Lithuanian resistance movement against Russia just continued, and um, uh, the, the revolutionaries, they stayed in forests and hide, um, were hiding from the Russian forces who fought them. And it went on for, for a good decade. And um, when he says, when he uses the term vertical war, he sort of makes, um, contrasts this kind of partisan war, this kind of um, experience that the Lithuanians went through in this case he contrasts it with the regular world, so to speak, uh, because it just took the war took a different kind of shape. Um, and he elaborates elaborates on this metaphor in the in the preface, which I think is really interesting. But mainly, I think that it means that um, that the partisans were forced to take a different kind of existence, to move into a different kind of existence. Whereas the essential things like life and love and um, all other things remained in existence in, in the horizontal way. 
So it's a bit complicated. I guess you would have to read the whole book to properly understand it. But I think it's also a good... I think it's a good metaphor to throw into into the preface, right? Right into the reader's face. Like it's also a them. nice metaphor to market the book too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Just to yeah, just make to, you just to entice the reader. <laughs> this particular book doesn't have a publisher yet. Um, I suppose. I suppose there is a very. Um, there's a great audience for it because it's a very relevant book. But also that brings us back to that, um, those other aspects of translator's work where you're also uh, not just translating a book, but also placing it in the market. And sometimes you might have to find the right publisher for it or a right home for it. Um, and it's definitely a book which I'd love to translate and see published. And mainly, um, it's been, I've been focusing on this book, especially during the events in Ukraine, when the events in Ukraine started, because I thought it um, brings that part of history very prominently, because he talk, um, so Mario Sebeshkaj just talks about uh, Lithuanian experience, which is very similar to Ukraine's and um, all the countries which were occupied by Russia. It was a chance to look at the past from a different perspective, where the past seemed to be repeating itself. So I was brought back to this book, uh, which is not only by um, an author who I really admire, but also handles these very relevant and significant themes. So, uh, it's longlisted for a John Trading Prize recently, and it, the book is, of course, set to be published. Please tell us about uh, John Trident Prize. Um, so, John Trident Prize, uh, tr uh, John Trident Translation Competition, is it's sponsored by British Comparative Literature Association and BCLT, British Centre for Literary Translation. And it's awarded to translators for the best unpublished literary translations from any language. Uh, I think it's a wonderful initiative. I haven't really... I've always, like, would hear about it and um, think of things that might be suitable uh, to submit, but I never did that um, until this year. So I entered with green, which ended up being longlisted. So this is my first time um, uh, applying. But um, the pri the prize is annual, so you can apply every year. And uh, yeah, I think it's really great and it's really encouraging. And um, I think we already have a lot of applicants, but I would definitely recommend um, uh joining the competition in fact uh, bclt and uh, university of east anglia these names they keep cropping up i think we have done more than 50 uh, interviews with translators covering about this is a 42nd language by the way lithuanian is the 42nd today yesterday night i was talking to a bulgarian translator uh, 
Misidora Angel. She's an alumnus of UEA again. <laughs> She was talking about UEA in glowing terms. And of course, BCLT and UEA. I believe in UK, the culture of translation and the amount of emphasis that they, these universities give for translations, I think it's nothing compared to any other place, I believe. I'm really glad to hear you say these kinds kind of things about BCLT. And um, I noticed the same thing. It, um, BCLT will just uh, come up in so many translators' experience, which is, which is wonderful. And it's been a very significant thing for me as well, which it's something that I started this conversation with when you asked how I, uh, how I became interested in translation which is very telling. And uh, it's been significant for me in so many ways because after attending my first summer school, and at that point I didn't know of BCLT. It was a little coincidental how I ended up there, but it ended up being such a prominent part of both of my translation journey as well as a personal journey. And uh, it's quite significant that so last year I I was uh, I contributed to organizing the summer school which was the first in-person summer school in three years I think after the pandemic uh, during the pandemic it um, went to online format um, and now it's going to be the summer school is going to be both in person and online um, so it's in person one year and then online the next year and so on, which I think is wonderful because it just gives um, a lot of translators a chance to attend it. And I it's something that I definitely recommend to anyone who's either translating or interested in translation uh, at any stage of their career. And um, yes, it's... Sure, thank you. So it's... It's been, um, many people used the phrase life-changing of BCLT summer school, and I think the number of examples just just proves that it, that it really is uh, like that. So many translators' experiences just can be traced back to BCLT, so various projects and collaborations, and something that we launched... Uh, last year, um, and I was very glad to contribute to this project. It's called BCLT Alumni, uh, where we're trying to um, connect uh, people who have attended or collaborated with um, BCLT, either attended the summer school or collaborated in other ways uh, since 2000. And there's a great number of people who are involved and uh, we're trying to connect all of them and uh, encourage new collaborations. It's really significant. So I'm still working on this project and it's, um, it's just wonderful. And it's wonderful to, um, to see how many varied experiences people have had and how um, lasting it is and how after attending a workshop or the summer school, people stay in touch and come up with, with all these wonderful projects and wonderful translations. So it's, 
it's extraordinary i think it's a, it's a true phenomenon so what is the, what are the projects that you are currently working on so the project that i'm really excited about right now is um a translation of a children's book from lithuanian and it's coming out this year it's coming out this year with kuromuro books uh an independent publisher of children of translated children's literature and they're based in norwich and we've met um some years ago and we always talked about working together and um i'm really glad that the right project came up and we secured funding from lithuanian culture institute which allowed us to take this further um so it's a book by a lithuanian classic called bitevelumete it's called the royal sobolukai or little apples of eden and it's another very personal experience for me because this was a book uh, that i read in school and practically grew up with because every uh, lithuanian child um everyone who goes to school to, in lithuania reads this book it's a part of our school curriculum uh so it was it always stuck in my mind especially this short story because the book is compiled from these it's a novel but it's com- uh, compiled from these uh cha- chapters which can um stand alone as separate short stories or you can read them in uh continuously as a novel um these little vignettes and uh, so we had extracts in our reading book in i think i was around 10 or 11 something like that and uh, the this vignette was called the marble tabletop and it just stuck in my memory i would always remember it uh, and it had this really interesting storyline uh, about sort of stepping from childhood into adulthood and the protagonist elsia was just a very interesting character and i just kept coming back to that story and especially the image of the marble tabletop it just it was such an interesting and symbolic image and um so i would always come back to that book and um it's really exciting to be translating something like that that has a personal um meaning to you that just brings up memories so wonderful so before we finish the conversation please read uh, a passage or two from green in both lithuanian and in english please and i think i'll read something from the preface from the very beginning of the novel iš kurio galo pradėtum vis tiek bus pinu gamtoje yra begalė spalvų ir atspalvių ir nėra ne vienos spalvos dėl kurios nebūtų kariauta tai šiame kare ėimsim plačiai Žmonės kariavo už žalią. Tokia mūsų miškų spalva. Labiausiai jie kariavo prieš raudoną. Tai prieš ukraujo spalva. Nors pasitaikydavo ginti ir geltoną nuo žalios. Buvo ir taip. Dar jie kariavo už savo įsitikinimą, kad privalo būti laisvi. Prieš kitų įsitikinimą, kad neprivalo. Bet taip ir nelyg plato. Tai buvo 20 amžiaus pats vidurys. Dar vadinamo aukso amžiame. Bet kiekvieno žvilgančio daikto pošnus paviršius ir kartai supuvęs vidus. Jie gyveno šio daikto 20 amžiaus gilumoje 
ir apie bliskį sinį žmonių. Iš pradžių geografijo buvo plati. Tokį pat karą kariavo didelis kiekis žmonių nuo Ukrainos pietuose Estijos šiaurėje. Galiausiai jie liko vieni. And now I'm going to switch to the English translation of the same passage. However you choose to look at it, it's only ever going to be complicated. Nature has tons of colors and hues. There's not a single color if it hasn't made a war. In the broad sense, people were fighting for the color green in this war. This is the color of our forests. More than anything, people were fighting against the color red. It's the color of our enemy's blood. Sometimes, the color yellow had to be protected from the color green. This would happen. They were also fighting for their belief that they had to be free, and against the belief of others that they didn't. But that's too broad. It was the middle of the 20th century, also known as the Golden Age. Every shiny thing has a beautiful surface, but the inside can sometimes be rotten. They lived in the depths of this, of this thing, the 20th century, and they were oblivious to its beauty. The geography was wide at first. The same war was fought by many people from southern Ukraine to northern Estonia. Eventually, they were alone. They were simply obsessed by the idea of having their own country. They had had it for 20 years, between the two world wars. They had agreed to wait out World War II, and then they were greatly surprised when their country was not given back to them. It's like letting waves run across the surface of a bridge. The bridge shouldn't disappear after the waves recede. In particular, they were Lithuanians, the nation north of Poland and south of Riga. And they did everything backwards. They would surrender when they were supposed to fight. They would take up arms in time of peace. War is vertical in nature. This is how wars usually go. People put their troops under their color and send them against another color and its troops. But that's the horizontal war. If these troops were stationed in a skyscraper, say, from the 30th to 58th floor, and saw the enemy's flags stretching from the ground floor to the 29th floor and went on the attack, that would be vertical war. The battles would take place in the stairwells. We didn't have skyscrapers, but the armies of this war were divided between two different levels. The enemy's army was based at the usual level, the one where people grow crops, go out on dates, where they make love if there's not a bed in sight. Lithuanians had stationed their troops where no one ever makes love, in a place where no one ever goes unless it's once and for all, with the thud of the bottom of a coffin. Vertical war is not a widely used term. This kind of war is more often referred to as the partisan war. But this term is also too broad. As far as the evolution of war goes, it was a step backwards. Spoiled by the best strategists and latest armaments, Europe could hardly have expected to witness such an outdated war that literally abandoned the latest inventions. 
Every weapon left behind by every army that had crossed the country was now carefully collected and used in battles that went on persistently for another solid decade. This war was led by someone who had studied artillery in Europe. He hadn't had a single firearm. This book is about him. What did these people expect? At first, perhaps they were hoping to win by themselves. Afterwards, they were hoping to wait it out underground until someone came and helped them win the war. The greatest one of these hopes was, of course, the United States. Eventually, they were hardly hoping for anything anymore. They simply didn't have a way out. None of these people would ever agree that World War II was ever won. At best, it ended in a tie somewhere far away, but here, they were digging bunkers and there was no tie. You could define this war as a civil war. Because it was not one country fighting the other, it was a single big country fighting itself, and it was a purely personal business. It was the pain of a big fish that had followed a smaller fish and was now digesting it alive. It was the smaller, smaller fish's pain, and was fighting because gastric juices. In simplest terms, Lithuanians were at war with Russians, but the latter were not pure Russians. There were some Lithuanians among them. There were also some Russians among the Lithuanians, as well as some Germans and others. The world was infused with crime and betrayal, and so war had become the sole condition of survival for many, and they didn't care who to be at war with and what for. Really nice. Thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, wish you the very best for your publication and of course uh, getting that prefix doctor <laughs> very soon. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you.